Before we get into our study tonight, let's uh, bow and look to the Lord in prayer. May we please? Our Father, we thank you so much for the precious Word of God and for the doctrines that have been preserved in the Scriptures. We thank you for the privilege we have of uh, openly meeting here tonight and studying them. We pray that you would just find us uh, focused on your Word and doctrines and will as we wait for the end of the church age. Thank you for each person who's taken time out of their lives to be here tonight. We pray your blessings on each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we defined kind of biblical separation uh, last week a little bit. We gave our own definition of it. it is, it's a decision that you make in which you are making a decision in accordance with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. And this becomes critical. You're making a decision that is in accordance with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in which you withdraw yourself or you separate yourself from... Uh, People, places, practices, perspectives, policies, plans, or paths, in order that God may classify you as a holy believer so that he may use you at a greater level. That's what biblical separation is. I think uh, just a couple of things I want to point out that we're going to certainly discuss tonight, and that is biblical separation is in accordance with the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the Word of God. That becomes critical criteria for determining uh, who and what we are going to actually separate ourselves from. Now, there have been some problems with this doctrine, and so we want to begin uh, with that question. What are the problems with the doctrine? Well, the, the problem when it comes to this doctrine uh, all throughout the history of the church is twofold when it comes to biblical separation. First of all, precisely understanding what the Word of God actually says. That has been a real issue when it comes to separation precisely understanding what the Word of God says, and secondly, precisely applying the Word of God to our lives. That seems to have been the two issues that have plagued the church uh, ever since this doctrine has come into existence. What does the Bible actually say uh, that we're to separate ourselves from, and then how do we actually apply that in, in various contexts? Now, matters pertaining to precise boundary and division lines become the main issue. And the problem arises when you have one person or group thinks that it should withdraw from one thing or thinks it should withdraw from one person, and another group thinks it should withdraw from something else. So, so you have these two issues. You have this group that says, oh, we need to separate ourselves from this, and you have this group saying we need to separate ourselves from this, and this group says we should separate ourselves from this person, and this group says that person. So the problem is, uh, how, do you, how do you resolve that and how do you determine what is legitimate in that? And that's where the issue is. In my understanding of uh, all of these matters in church history, all could be resolved by a precise understanding of Scripture. And, and that's what we're going to show you in the course of the next weeks as we go on a journey through this doctrine. The more precise we are in our understanding of the Bible, the more we're able to step back and say, all right, this is legitimate, I need to break from this, this is not legitimate. I don't need to break from that. Now, I want to cite a couple of examples from church history, one from the Bible and one from church history, that uh, shows the point of the problem. Uh, there was a great misunderstanding of this very principle of separation in the Corinthian church. So I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would please. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. We read... I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world 
or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church, but those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among uh, yourselves? Now the Corinthians thought, and they had misunderstood uh, what was true in the scriptures, that they should separate themselves from the unsaved world. That they should have nothing to do with the unsaved world whatsoever, unsaved people. They should just stay away from them. That's what they were doing. And saying, well now, we won't, uh, we won't in any way associate with this person because they have this sin issue or that sin issue. And Paul says, look, you missed my point. I'm not saying you shouldn't associate or try to reach out to people who are sinful. What I was telling you is, you're to separate yourself from a sinful brother, not a lost world. If you have someone who says, I know Jesus Christ, and they are persisting in a lifestyle that is immoral or uh, covetous or a reviler just constantly butchering people verbally. You get away from that person. That's the person I said you separate yourself from. I did not talk about separating yourself from people in the unsaved world. So the problem, as you can see it right here in Living Color in, in Corinthians, is they lacked a precise understanding of what the Word of God actually said. Because the Word of God did not teach that they should separate themselves from unsaved people, they had a witness to unsaved people. It said you should separate yourself from one who's a believer. He said, look, the, the unbeliever, God will judge. You don't even have to worry about that. Uh, it's, the, it's the believer who's getting out there in those dangerous fields that you need to be concerned about and you need to be making some breaks from. So Paul is very clear on that point. Now let me cite you another example. This one doesn't come from the Bible, but this does come from church history. And it's a pretty interesting illustration. The hermit monks were obviously a group of people who decided that the best way for them to live their life would be to separate themselves from the whole world. So they built these monasteries, and they literally would go in there and hide out. I mean, they actually thought that if they, if they would separate themselves uh, from the world, they were somehow pleasing God, uh, so they just stayed away from anything that they classified as being uh, worldly. They were carrying their concept of, uh, of separation to a total extreme, which was way beyond the boundaries of anything the Word of God had ever said that we were to do. And yet they were doing that and separating themselves from that. It was, it was craziness in what they were doing. And if you read uh, some of the accounts of what uh, some of those separatists did, it was, it was unbelievable. I mean, one guy built a tower, went up and lived on top of a tower, thinking, well, I'll live up here away from the world, and it'll just be me and God. And people thought he was nuts, which he was. Uh, but they certainly didn't, uh, they didn't uh, think, well, there's a guy who really is influencing the world uh, for Jesus Christ. But one of the more interesting illustrations on this point uh, comes from church history, and ironically, it comes from perhaps one of the greatest theologians that ever graced the church age, and it was Aurelius Augustine. Now, Augustine was the famed uh, Bishop of Hippo, uh, who unquestionably is one of the great names uh, in the history of the church. His development of theology is still a foundational uh, uh, doctrine or theology of even contemporary theological systems. But when it came to his concept of the doctrine of a church, 
especially as it related to this idea of separation, he had a really unique viewpoint that is, is most interesting. Uh, Augustine believed that the visible church, the organized church, like Texas Corners Bible Church, was holy even if its members were not. Augustine taught that the church would be holy even if the people who came to the church uh, were not interested in pursuing anything that was holy. And Augustine reasoned something like this. He said the church was established by the apostles, and therefore the church was holy and separated regardless of the spiritual condition of its members. Well, uh, there were some separatist groups that came up about, oh, the year 380, 313. One of them was a group that followed a guy by the name of Donatists. They became known as the uh, Donatists. And they were a group that started breaking. Augustine was coming out of the Roman Catholicism, was in that system, and they were going to break away uh, from the Catholic Church. And they argued just the opposite. They said, now look, if the members of the church aren't living holy lives, you cannot classify the church as being holy. If you don't have the people who are in the church that are after the word of God and will of God, and if the people in the church aren't interested in reverencing God, then there's no way you could say that church is a holy church that pleases God. Dr. Ernest Pickering said the Catholic Church contended then through Augustine and still does to this day that the church's holiness exists whether or not its members are holy. And this is no kidding. You can actually, in a Catholic church, get drunk in the church on Friday night and have a dance band in there and dance, and they'll still say the church is holy on Sunday. That's how uh, bizarre the thinking is. Uh, So they're thinking this church is just separated. It's set apart. It's holy. God views it uh, as holy. The Donatists, on the other hand, would say there's no way. If you don't have people in the church that are trying to uh, conform to godliness and they, they, they are interested in the word of God and applying the scriptures to their lives, then you do not have a holy church. And as uh, Dr. Pickering went on to say, the, the church was polluted by the communion with these people and thus ceased to be a true Christian church. Now here's my point. How do we ter- determine who's right and who's wrong on this? I mean, would God view Texas Corners Bible Church as a holy, separated church if the rest of the week we go out and live like pigs in sin? And we all get together on Sunday and we go back there to the fellowship hall and we're just uh, uh, back there slapping each other on the back. Would God view that as a, a holy operation? Would he say the church is holy regardless of what the people... Or would God want us to be holy and demand that we be holy before he would classify us as a church that was separated under the Lord. Well, how do we determine the issue? How do we find out who's right and who's wrong on the issue? We must turn to the written scriptures. It's the written scriptures that have to resolve this. We have to go to the word of God and base our conclusions on what God's word actually says. Now, it is possible that a church would always be special and separated Uh, to God, regardless of what its membership was like. But in order for God to deem a church as one that is separated unto him, would his members have to be holy? Would the people who attend have to be interested in the word of God? What is it? Would God just say the church is holy because it's a church? Or would he say the people have to be holy in order for me to classify it as a church? Well, let's go to the word of God and find out. Let's go to the book of Revelation. Now there in the book of Revelation are just some interesting addresses that Jesus Christ gives to seven churches. Fascinating addresses for many, many reasons. 
one of uh, which I could cite many reasons that make this text fascinating, but a lot of the things that the church views as really significant, you don't see there. Um, you don't see uh, uh, admonitions like uh, uh, you'll hear sometimes coming out of some churches and some ministries, and you don't see that here. Uh, what you find is you find Jesus Christ taking a very personal look at various local churches. And when you look at these churches, you'll discover that he gives a series of warnings to those that are in the church that they better start making adjustments in light of the scriptures. And if they don't do that, there could be some serious consequences. For example, the church of Ephesus, if you look at chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus says, Remember therefore from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What Jesus is saying is, look, you've lost your first love. You need to get back to that. Where you're focused on me and you're focused on my word and my will. You need to come back to that. And if you don't do that, he warns this church, I'll come and I'll remove that, that candlestick right out of the way. Which means I will stop this church from being a shining testimony for the glory of God. I will not let it reflect my glory and be used anymore as a statement for my glory and for my grace. We could conclude based on the warning that shows up right in this passage that the behavior of the people that were at the church was a critical factor of biblical separation. In other words, if the people would respond to the word of God, then God would say, I'll bless that church, I'll keep blessing that church, I'll keep... Uh, shining my uh, light uh, of blessing right through that church. Now let's go to another church, the church of Thyatira, chapter 2. Let's start at verse 20. I have this against you. Now if you could see this in the Greek, the first thing he says I have against you is that you tolerate a woman who calls herself a prophetess to teach. That's basically what he's saying. I got that against you. You're letting a woman teach. There's number one. Number two, the other thing I have against you is you're letting this woman not only teach, but she's leading people astray. She's leading them away from the word of God and away from truth. She's leading them into immorality. She's leading them into a form of idolatry. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you this right now. You need to repent because I am searching. Notice carefully verse 23. I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now that becomes pretty clear that when church meets, Jesus Christ is searching the minds and hearts of all the people who are there. This sits in a context of Jesus warning a church, I'll start executing people. I'll pinpoint people that are not faithful, and I'll just start having them drop dead. They'll die of different things. And that's the warning. It is a literal, physical warning where people are going to start uh, dying. And Jesus said, and when I start doing that, and they say, man, that one's out of line, they go, and this one's out of line, and they go, people will understand that I search the minds and hearts. So that tells me that you had better make sure that the church is moving in a way that is uh, God-honoring in order for God to classify it as holy, or else there's some serious judgment that comes to it. Now, the third one is in Revelation chapter 3, and I think I put in your notes verse two, uh, chapter 2, but it should be 3, verses 16 and 17, and that, of course, is the church of Laodicea. Now, look at this. So, because you are lukewarm, verse 16, 
um, and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and, and naked. Uh, I think this church of Laodicea um, is very, very interesting because it shows us that if those people did not respond to Jesus Christ, and he views himself in this church as being on the outside. He's not even inside anybody. He says, I'm on the outside knocking at the door. Is there anybody in there that wants a relationship with me? Who wants to fellowship with me? I mean, that's the message there. Obviously, he's not classifying this church as a wholly separated church simply because it's a building with a bunch of people going to it on Sunday. He was very much interested in what was going on inside and concerning the lives of the people, which leads us to this conclusion. Augustine was wrong. He was wrong on that point. God's word settles the issue. We go to the scriptures and we look into the scriptures and what we view is this. If God's people are living lives that are pleasing to him, he views that church as a wonderful place and he allows a lot of wonderful things to happen. He pours out his blessings through the church. He allows it to shine forth his glory. On the other hand, if God's people are pursuing a life that is evil and corrupt and sinful, he views the church as leavened. And I, don't, and I want to go back to that for a moment. I, I'd like you to go back to 1 Corinthians 5. I, I want to um, point out something there for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, notice uh, carefully, he was talking about you need to get this person out of the church, you need to separate yourself from this individual that was involved in, in immorality, and he says, uh, I have decided, verse 5, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Now, when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump, I don't think he means by this that if you don't clean this out, everybody's going to fall into immorality. I don't think that's it at all. I think he's saying this is the way I view the place. If you don't, if you don't get the sin out of there, that gross sin out of there, I view that church as leaven. I view it, the whole place as being sinful. I do not view it as being a place that I will bless. I do not view it as a place where I'm going to um, minister to people. I view the whole thing as corrupt. That's what he's saying there. So you need to take a real personal interest, a real pastoral interest in what is going on in the church and make sure it's kept clean from these kinds of terrible things that were happening in the Corinthian church. So Augustine was just frankly wrong. God does not view a church as holy and pure simply because we call it a church. What he's looking for are the people who go to the church. And when he sees people that are going to the church and they love him and they love his word and they love to hear it and learn it and make adjustments in their lives, now that's a place right there that he's going to bless. Now how did we determine this? How do we determine who's right and who's wrong on an issue like this? The scriptures. We went to the written scriptures. There's where we look to for uh, the answers. Now that brings me to the next question in our study, and that is, what are the main arguments against biblical uh, separation? When you bring up the term separation to believers, some of them get scared. As we, uh, as we would expect, even though separation is biblical, it's also opposed. 
uh, in this day and age that basically says love anybody regardless of who they are or what they do. In this day and age which says peace at any cost. It doesn't matter what it costs you. Just be peaceful with everybody and get along with everybody. The idea uh, of separating yourself uh, is, is, as John Miles said in his book, The Tightrope of Separation, the most feared word in the vocabulary of, of, of Christianity. It's a very feared word, separate yourself, especially in a context of, oh, we should just love everybody regardless of who they are or what they are doing. Uh, and we should just be one big, happy, back-slapping family. That idea is anti-Bible, it's anti-God. In fact, this study is going to prove that God demands that we separate ourselves from certain things. God demands that we separate ourselves from different kinds of people. To state it another way, no matter how unloving it may seem to whoever, or no matter how unpleasant or unpeaceful it may appear to be, there are times when a biblical separation must occur. Must occur. And naturally, in today's society, this kind of teaching will not be too popular. And you can expect it's going to have its share of opponents. And those who have opposed this doctrine of biblical separation, and again, I want you to keep it in mind, we're not talking about legalistic separation. We're not talking about law separation. We're talking about grace age, biblical separation that is based on the written word of God. So anytime we're going to think in terms of separation, we're going to say, is this established by the written word of God? Or is this just my goofy idea that I, I'm thinking? That's what we're going to try to train ourselves to do. But when it comes to this topic of separation, there have been three main arguments used against it. The first argument is separation promotes division. That's the first argument. Separation promotes division. The basic premise behind this argument is if a doctrine of separation is taught, then it fosters divisions between people and it fosters divisive attitudes toward people. And one simple response to this is that is exactly what it's supposed to do. That's exactly what the doctrine is supposed to do. It is supposed to do that. If, if for example, a brother or sister is moving away from the Word of God, then naturally, we don't have any business uh, just saying, well, let's just get along fine all together and just hope we have a good time in spite of that. Uh, go over to uh, 2 Thessalonians, if you would. 2 Thessalonians. And look at uh, chapter 3. And look at verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. We read, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Look at verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him, so that he may be put to shame, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That's exactly what the doctrine is supposed to do. The doctrine of separation says, look, I'm drawing a sharp dividing line here. I am not going to cross this line. I am not going to cross this line and fellowship with you or just have friendship with you because you're out there contrary to the Word of God and you're saying you're right with God. I'm not going to do it. I won't associate with you. That's exactly what this doctrine is supposed to do. So when somebody says, well, now, it's going to promote division between one thing and another or one person and another, my answer to that is that's exactly what it should do. That's what biblical separation is. It's causing a division between something. 
Now the second argument that's used against it is that separation exalts doctrine. The basic premise behind this is, well, if you get into this doctrine of separation, you'll start exalting minor, minor doctrines and you'll make them a real test of fellowship. For example, let me give you one simple one, an illustration. You have a group of people that say you can lose your salvation. That's what they claim. You can lose your salvation. And some of those people will say, oh, it's just a minor point. A minor point, uh, and who cares really if they think that, just as long as they're saved, that's the real issue. This isn't a minor point. This comes down to the issue of who do you think saves you? Do you think Jesus Christ saves you by his shed blood and sacrifice on Calvary? Or do you think you save yourself? Do you think that he's the one who by his blood washes you whiter than snow and gives you a therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus? Or do you think it's up to you? This is not just some minor point of doctrine. This is the whole system of theology. Now we've been given a biblical mandate. And the biblical mandate is this. If anybody comes to you, whether it would be an angel or any person, preaching another gospel, let them be accursed. What's that saying? We'll just sit down at the table and say, well, you've got your view and I've got mine. Let's just have a cup of coffee and enjoy cookies. I mean, that's not what that's saying. Let them be accursed. Basically, you're saying, look, you start tampering with the gospel of God found in Jesus Christ that gives us a righteousness that lets me stand in the sight of the living God whiter than snow. You start trying to attack that doctrine, I want to tell you you aren't going to be eating cookies in my house. I'll tell you that right now. Because you're preaching another gospel, a gospel that is not found in the scriptures. See, doctrine, in my opinion, gives you an ability to really think more smartly about this whole thing of separation. Because the more precise people are in their doctrine, the more mature they are in the word, the more stable they are in their faith. And one who's mature and stable is in a great position to determine whether or not separation is in fact biblical. And one question I think worth raising is, and I've always wondered this, who decides whether the doctrine is major or minor? And what's the criteria? I've heard people talk about that. Oh, that's just a, you're, you're majoring on a minor doctrine. Well, what is the minor doctrine? Would you tell me that, please? I mean, if it's revealed in the Word of God, isn't it all equally important? Isn't that what plenary inspiration means? That every part of Scripture is equally important? So who determines this? The truth is doctrine needs to be exalted today because doctrine is being lost today. Nobody hardly knows what they believe anymore. And a high exaltation of true biblical doctrine will always lead one to understand true biblical separation. I want to tell you, you won't find somebody who truly is given over to carefully understanding doctrines being weird in separation. You'll never find that. Because you'll find people that really are serious about understanding the scriptures and understanding doctrine, they're solid in their faith. They know where the boundary lines are. They know when they draw the line and when they don't cross this particular line. That's what doctrine does for you. It makes you stable. It, it produces a, a maturity so that you can sift through things and choose the best from the good. The third argument that attacks this doctrine is separation promotes lack of communication. Now the basic premise behind this idea is when you separate yourself from someone, you tend not to communicate with them. In other words, you don't keep communication lines open with those from whom you separate. So therefore, a doctrine of separation just breaks down communication. Well, I want to tell you right now, 
And in the course of this study, we're going to examine a whole lot of passages that deal with this very theme of separation. And you will discover when we examine all of these passages that there is no evidence that part of the criteria for separating is to see that you can maintain good lines of communication from those you are separating. That is not taught in the scriptures. It's not taught, let's separate, but let's keep those good lines of communication open. You aren't separating if you keep the good lines of communication open. Now, if you think I'm just dreaming that up, let's just look at a few passages and see. And this is how we'll uh, end this tonight. I've already shown you one there in 2 Thessalonians, but we've already gone to 1 Corinthians 5. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, that is pretty clear there that uh, you, you don't have anything to do with them. Boy, it's not saying there. Now, be sure and keep the lines of communication open so uh, that can really uh, maybe work itself out. No, there's a line you draw in the sand right there. No, I'll have nothing to do with idolatrous worship. I'll not, I'll not have anything to do with people that are in it. I'm cutting them off right there. Uh, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul gives a list of, of people who are pretending to be religious. They're, uh, they're treacherous, they're reckless, they're conceited. Notice verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. What is that saying? Avoid them. It's not saying, well, keep the lines of communication open with them. Avoid those people. Uh, don't have anything to do with those kinds of people. Uh, go to Titus chapter 3, verse 9. Titus 3, verse 9. Shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You find somebody that's factious, always causing problems among the people of God, you've given them one or two warnings, reject them. You don't just snuggle up to them and say, well, let's just hope that I can keep lines of communication open and things will get better. You reject them. Why? So they'll be put to shame. Because they understand, look, you've wronged my brother. You've wronged my sister. You've crossed this line. We're not going to stand for that. We won't tolerate that. And then uh, go over to 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. I'd say that's a pretty sharp line of separation right there. You don't let that person step a foot in your house. If they're, if they're mocking Jesus Christ and who he is and trying to uh, 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 support uh, heresy. I mean, I know people that think it's cute to have Mormons come over and let's all sit down and talk. Or have Jehovah's Witness come over, yeah, come on in the house and let's, let's hash it out. You're not supposed to let them in the house. And you're supposed to uh, let them be accursed, send them down the road, tell them they're on their way to hell for what they're doing. That's what you should be telling these people, not trying to cater to them or getting the lines of communication open to them. They're driven by Satan to your house. Don't you understand that? That's a demon walking right up to your house, knocking on your door. 
Now, when you look at these things, you have to realize, now there are times when certainly in some instances you try to keep some communication open, but, but, when you spot someone and you say, you know what, I need to shut down fellowship here. This is going nowhere. The whole point is not let's get together and so we can all hash out again. Once biblical separation has occurred, there should be no real further communication until that person says, you know what, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. And when a person finally comes to repentance, then those wonderful lines of fellowship and communication can be opened again and a person can be restored. Now, this is biblical separation. And that's what we're going to study in the next weeks. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface. But you're getting an idea of how this works. We're going to the scriptures. When the scriptures say we separate, we separate. Scriptures don't say it, we don't say it. Any questions or comments about what we covered tonight?